Hi there, everybody. Welcome to the 200th episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. The bicentennial, I think you would call that. We've been at this for 10 years, give or take a couple months, and it is all because of you. I have you to thank and you to be grateful for. Thank you for making it happen. Thank you for supporting the show in whatever way you can. And thanks for thanks for the education to all the amazing guests we've had on the show and the amazing guests yet to be on the show. It has been a ball, it has been a joy, it has been a pleasure, and I'm excited to really put a lot more energy into it going forward. I've been wrapped up in this house build in the kind of last year and a half, and I always feel like these are kind of, oh, we gotta get another show out, and I haven't been able to put the energy I like to. I've got a whole huge folder of suggestions from those of you who have reached out over the months and years, and I promise to bring those shows to you. We have a lot of legends out there to interview, and a lot of hang gliders and hot air balloon people that I don't typically have on the show and should. It's been one of those I need to do for a long time, and I promise I will. But what I can say about this show, I'm kind of happy that it just happened to fall on the 200th, is this one is very special. One is the first time we've ever had so many people in a single recording. I had three of the expeditions, five on this one. We've done live shows with more than that, but I had to get these guys in South Africa and London to come on the show. And that was all thanks to Barb's, Richard Barber. So thank you, sir. But this was, uh, this was a real treat to talk to a climbing legend, Andy DeClerc. And we didn't have Pierre Carter and Jeremy Holdcroft, who were two of the expedition members uh, on, on this one. Uh, you know, all know, probably recognize those names, but certainly Pierre Carter, he flew off Everest last year and has you know, partook in the Red Bull X Alps back in the day. And a couple of those, and some great stories from that. And I will get him on you know, just independently on the show as soon as we can make those two things align but in this show I talked to Scott Baker and Andy DeClerc and Richard Barber. Andy DeClerc you all might recognize those of you with mountaineering background. Legendary climber. He's climbed with Alex Lowe and Conrad Anker and many others. Uh, was on Everest and the fateful John Krakauer story and is uh, many hundreds of first descents in his home of South Africa and many around the world. He's been at it a long time. He's also a skydiver and a base jumper and a true pioneer in flight. He's been paragliding since it started and hang gliding before that, but it was just fantastic to have him on my screen and, and get to share in his joy of the mountains. These five guys went off to Pakistan this summer to try to break the altitude record. They have been inspired by all the amazing stuff that's gone on in Pakistan. Of course, Brad Sander was one of the first out there who I've done some flying with and haven't seen him in an awfully long time, but he was one of the original pioneers. And then in the last few years, we've seen some amazing things by Antoine Girard and Damien Lacaz and Fabi Buell and Aaron Dergati's incredible huge triangles out there last summer and then most more recently Horacio Lorenz and 
and Tom DeDorlado, who have both been out there several times, but they made their incredible film of flying out to K2 along the Baltoro Glacier this last year. And that film is absolutely amazing. I'm sure many of you have seen it. If you haven't, make sure to do so. The, the link to that film will be in the show notes. But these guys are more humble, I think, in their uh, flying endeavors. And certainly Andy is the, the BMF when it comes to mountaineering and climbing experience. But, you know, they'd seen this stuff and thought, why can't a group of just blokes from South Africa and, and get out there and, and go big as well? So they did. They went out there and uh, soon after arrival, they did their acclimatization in the Hunza and, and then made their way up to the kind of the launch point to get out to K2 and fly along the Baltoro. You hear all about that. But on the first flight of that series, things went epically sideways. And this is their story of what went right, what went wrong, which was quite a bit and uh, the learning and the education that came out of it. They are all, as you will hear, still very good friends and they have plans for the future, but this was a lot of fun and sometimes pretty riotous, and, uh, but a great education for all of us, especially when heading off to remote big places like Pakistan is the highest mountains in the world. So enjoy this bicentennial episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem with uh, all these fine gentlemen and enjoy their story. Cheers. All right, well, gentlemen, uh, we've never interviewed this many people at one point and you're spread all across the world, uh, South Africa and Cape Town and, and Barb's here in London, I guess. That's that's a, well, I'm in Nottingham today. But, ah, yeah. you're in Nottingham today. All right. And I'm over here in, in Sun Valley. So welcome to the Mayhem. It's it's cool to have you guys on the show. Barbs, I appreciate you keeping me updated both <laughs> before and after. Why don't we start by just a very quick, quick introduction from the three of you on who you are and your climbing and, and flying background. And then I'll ask you about the mission. But why don't we why don't we start, Barb's? Why don't you start, and then uh, we'll go around my clock here, and then we'll go to Andy, and then we'll go to Scott. Okay, cool. Um, so Richard Barber, I've been flying since two thousand and four. Um, before that, I did my pilot's license um, in two thousand and eight. Um, within a year, I lied about my hours, went to South Africa to the Northern Cape to a place called Dar, um, flew uh, over a hundred k's um, quite quickly. Went back the next year, um, flew 100K in a little over two hours, um, <laughs> using half breaks most of the time and sort of scaring myself stupid. Um, gave up for a little while while I was married, then uh, got divorced, so I didn't have any responsibility, so I took up the sport again. Um, and then since then, it's just been a, a continuous rise with paragliding taking over more of my life. Nice. And Andy? Oh, that's great. Cool. So I've... Uh, in South Africa, I would be known as an Obali, which is an old man, an old guy. I started flying in 1984, actually, uh, um, in, the, in the very early days, um, you know, prior to actual paragliders being made. We used to take the pilot chutes off our skydiving canopies and, and, and then run off hills. Um, 
started in the early days, um, sort of up to about 1990, was was the um, was sort of part of the early um, wave of flying in South Africa, and then I stopped and um, went. Uh, off to pursue my alpinism and the and the sort of rock climbing. I, I actually lived in Seattle for ten years. Um, had climbed all over the world: Denali, Patagonia, <clears throat> a few trips to Himalayas before. And while this was going on, I was always, um, you know, busy with the second sport of skydiving and then later base jumping. Um, so I'm, I've kind of been around the block, been around the block climbing. And um, then about five or six years ago, I decided I was going to get back into paragliding. I probably had about 300 hours up till 2017, and that's when I got back into it properly. And um, I'm really enjoying the aviation aspect. So in a way, with the rise of paragliding, I got off just when all the experimental stuff happened and then joined again when it was nice and safe and and well um, established. Married, God, man, we, 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 we got to do three podcasts just with you, but go ahead. There's, there's a lot of history there. I would just die to dig into, but yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And then basically, uh, basically married with four kids in Cape town, uh, and run a cabinet making business. So that's me. Do your kids fly? Uh, my youngest son does. Yeah. He just started about a year ago. Very and, cool. the, and the others don't like paragliding. <laughs> Probably better. Probably better yeah. <laughs> and Scott. So I've been flying far less of a illustrious career, I suppose, in flying in aviation terms. Been flying since 2019. Um, I've come from a bit of an outdoor background. I did a lot of freestyle and whitewater kayaking was my thing for many years, um, kind of in my youth. A uh, little bit of rally biking. So used to being to a degree uh, out in the exposure thing, but not not as wild as Andy's uh, Andy's previous career. And um, also live in Cape Town. Um, I work in the film and media production industry um, and service, strangely, mostly fashion and luxury brand. Um, but I I organize things for a living. Is my uh, and and make make good tea. Um, that's my yeah. That's my life. Mm. I always find it really interesting, the kayaking, flying connection. And there seems to be a, a very much similar mindset in the in those groups of people. That was, you know, certainly my background was, was in paddling before flying. And it seems to really connect. A different one is, is you, Andy. You know, Will Gadd always told me that it made him nervous when climbers would would go to flying because it was you know flying is very much a gravity sport uh it's a flow sport you know so he's he finds that kayaking skateboarding mountain biking these kind of sports where you're dealing with a lot of gravity you're dealing with gravity obviously climbing but climbing is more precision slow it's not so much a flow sport you can get in the flow state of mind of course which we talk about a lot on the show but it, it interesting that you you actually sounds like you went the other way. You you started with flying and then you went to climbing. Is that right? Um, not exactly. I've been I've basically been climbing since I was a very young kid, mm. and um, uh, the um, 
how shall I say the the um, you know the combination of um, base jumping and climbing works very well together, and that was mm. something that I always wanted to do. So I started skydiving first, and 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 then in the early days paragliding, but it was mostly to get into base jumping so we could climb things and then jump off them, and that's kind of what we did. So you were the original Dean Potter. You you probably gave him the idea. <laughs> Pretty much, <laughs> <laughs> and your 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 partners were no strangers to the the alpine world. Alex Lowe and Conrad, and uh, you're you're being quite humble. You've you've climbed a lot of big stuff. Yeah, well, very interestingly, I met Conrad at the uh, at at the seven thousand foot Hilton Base Camp in Alaska on his very first season. He was really? a youngster with a huge crop of blonde hair, and then. <laughs> More sadly enough, we were in Paiu in 1999. We were trying Gashabum 4, and Alex Lowe was in a um, um, he was on an expedition to Shipton Spire, and he came out for a few days. I think he had he was sick or something, and that was sadly the last time I saw him because mm. later that year he was killed in that avalanche in Shishapangma. So it's, mm. it, it's I have I've met a lot of interesting people. I've always kept under the radar and not sort of sprouted about it, but. Uh, both the paragliders and the you know and the climbers are amazing tribe, really. Speaking of the tribe of the two, you know, you're you're you've pushed into two sports who take a lot of us. Uh, you know, mountaineering certainly uh, has enormous risk. Usually, not so much dependent on the people, but the you know the the mountains themselves. Uh, same with flying often it's not you know it's not the gear it's it's off it's sometimes the decisions but we get in the the problem with paddling and flying and climbing is you can get into places where you can't stop you can't just hit the eject button i guess unless you've got a base rig on your back and and can but uh which one this is a hard question but which one has taken more friends I would say, on balance, um, more people get taken paragliding mm. um, than climbing. But I, I've just been climbing a lot longer, and so there's been a lot of people from climbing. Um, yeah. Most, more especially from alpinism, you know, in the mountains, not so much rock climbing. But again, it's just got to do with numbers. Um, I mean, there's, I mean, there's a lot more people that basically paraglide. I think, and and I think paragliding is a far more dangerous uh, sport or activity than mountaineering and climbing. As you said, it's 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 a lot more dynamic. It is a lot. So, it is very dynamic. Yeah. It's sure. a it's a difficult question to answer, but uh, on balance, I'd say paragliding. Interesting. Hadn't planned on going there. Just caught me as an interesting question. Barb's, you reached out before you guys went and uh, you and I had, you had said, Hey, we got to get Pierre on the show, which I still need to do. And I was hoping he could join us for this. But uh, those of you listening, that's Pierre Carter who competed in the X Alps a couple of times and a legendary South African pilot and animal. And so tell me the original expedition, I assume was a bit inspired by Tonda Dorlado and, what those guys did in the Baltoro or no, was this something you had dreamed up and then they went in there and, and got into it. But tell us what was planned and, and the team, a little bit about the team and, and what, what the mission was. Sure. So um, I'm never good when I'm bored. Um, 
and COVID was rubbish, um, <laughs> particularly, particularly to start with. Um, I, I was I was furloughed for a little while, um, and uh, that was June 2020. Um, and so I started looking for, and I'd sort of started in May even, just looking for um, uh, convergence lines and high cloud bases around the world. So I, I played on Windy, um, just looking looking for convergence, and then also looking at cloud base. And so the two which I found were the um, uh, the convergence that sets up over the atlas, um, and also then I found sort of um, the uh, the the Karakoram from that. Um, I was also already aware of the Karakoram because of John Sylvester. Like you, I went with. Um, Sky Safari's um, Jim, um, Eddie Colfox, who I think at some point you've just got to get on. The oh, for that. sure, yeah. Um, and uh, and obviously John Sylvester as well. And then sort of, and I'd watch Birdman of the Karakoram, and so I had a sort of bit of it. And you know, having seen this thing for Pakistan, I then contacted Andy. Um, it was like, hey, Andy, um, I've I've seen the Karakoram. And I also watched a program with um, a David Attenborough program at the same time, just happen, happenstance, where it talked about Concordia. And Concordia, you've got the the view of Broad Peak, you've got K2, you've got the Gashabrams, and you've got Mashabram to the south. And he called it, I think, the Valley of the Gods. And I was like, okay, got to do this. So got in touch with Andy. I was like, hey, Andy. And he chuckled and sent me his goals in paragliding. And his ultimate goal in paragliding was to fly the Baltore. Mm. Um, so, so that was 2020, um, and then 21, I sort of started started really sort of looking at it a bit more. Um, then um, 2022, uh, yeah, 21, uh, I started planning for 2022, but couldn't get it organised. And actually, thank goodness, because I'd have got nowhere because I didn't have the right contacts. I didn't realize quite how difficult um, trying to organize the logistics of something in Pakistan would be. So, so that was where it all came from, I guess. Can and you, then Tom, can you give us went. a can you give us a couple minutes on on what is involved? I, I just had four buddies take off and go there to to fly, and I, I don't know that they did anything. I think they're just going out there and seeing what happens. I don't think they have a necessarily a mission. They just want to be in the Karakoram and fly, and they know that there's oxygen. That's kind of it. <laughs> oxygen is a hard one. Oxygen. <laughs> That was my that was my portfolio. Make sure we have oxygen. Ah, okay, <laughs> all right. I I offloaded that particular one to Scott. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I offloaded that pretty fast when Scott joined the trip. I was like, Scott, uh, I've been in touch with Brad Sander, and I was like, Scott, you can look after oxygen. So that was that was that problem. But no, I I think first of all you've got to get permits. Um, now. You, you've had Aaron on on the show in the past who talked about ending up in jail in Hunza because he hadn't sort of got that bit sorted out in advance. Mm. Now, all these things can be sorted out with time. Um, yeah, If you've got the time, it's not a problem. You can speak to the right people. You get, when you get there, people, the Pakistani people are the most friendly, helpful people anywhere on earth. 
as far as I'm concerned. I've been to a lot of places, but they really were outstandingly, brilliantly helpful and wonderful. Um, but you've got the in the for the Baltoro specifically, it's it's a military it's a militarized zone. Um, the only helicopters that can fly there are military helicopters. Mm. Um, so you've got to get uh, a bunch of different permits. You've got to get a trekking permit first of all from the uh, from the government. But actually, it, do you get a trekking permit or do you get a trekking and mountaineering permit? And if you don't have that, you can't go in there. If you don't have an expedition partner that's a local partner, you can't go in there. Um, if and then on top of that, you then need to have a permit to go flying. Now, fortunately, Tom and Horatio and Tom, uh, we spoke to through XCMAG. Um, they put me in touch with Tom and Tom, he was moving from Belgium to the Azores. Uh, and he's like, OK, I'm going to have an hour on this day at this time. I can talk to you guys. Yeah, he's a busy and man. <laughs> he, yeah, but he gave, he gave that full hour and gave us total undivided attention. What he didn't tell us was that he was moving house from from Belgium to the Azores. He was editing the uh, uh, Flying Between Giants movie, which anyone who hasn't seen is an absolute must for anyone who yeah, amazing. The, the cinematography is excellent. He and Horatio just awesome. The uh, when Morales got caught, caught up at base camp and seeing his face sort of having walked for two days back, it's um, the whole thing's priceless. Yeah. Um, so, so there was just. And, and and Tom put us in touch with Jasmine Tours, which, to be honest, was probably the most important thing out of everything, um, because they they are they've been established for over twenty years. They know everyone. They know the commissioners. They they know sort of everyone that's needed. They they know the military people. They even have a deal with the military for the helicopters, so that everyone any other group that goes there, they have to put down a ten thousand pound deposit or $10,000 deposit of people's own money beforehand to uh, so if they're going to get a, uh, a helicopter. Mm. Now, we we didn't have to do any of that because Jasmine's so well established and Jasmine does all the checks to make sure that we had the appropriate insurances and stuff and that the military wasn't going to be sort of left left short mm. um, if, if they did things. So so that, that was super important. But yeah, I also WhatsApped Antoine Girard because I found his number somewhere um, and had a WhatsApp conversation with him. Um, I found out that a guy called Sajid Shah was the head of the Pakistani Paragliding Association, got in touch with him. And he said to me, look, if you want to go to the Baltoro Glacier, you need to have a, what's your mission going to be? And so it's like, ah, okay, we need a mission. Oh, well, I guess we're going to go for the record then. Um and so that's how it went from just wanting to go and fly in the Baltoro and fly in around amongst the Trango Towers and fly to Broad Peak to actually let's see if we can break a record. Hmm. Okay, so the the mission was to just break the record, go higher than anybody else. The, had gone. the record was to to fly onto K two ideally, yeah, um, and to break the altitude record. Um, and so all the preparation really, from certainly from my side, was to make sure I was in the best possible condition to enable me to do that safely. And how was the team chosen? And, and we've got a couple of people missing here. So fill in quickly, who's the team? How was that chosen? Uh, what was what were the different roles? Sure. So um, Andy and I had been talking about this for a couple of years. And 
one of the things I've been doing was looking at weather. Um, I've always been a bit of a weather geek because I don't have that much leave. Um, so I'm forever and I've got access to staff travel. So um, I, uh, I bounce for, for day trips to the Alps are not desperately unusual for me um, because if, if it's good, then um, I'm, I'd very happily spend twice as much on a plane ticket than I would on a train in the UK. Um, and so, so Andy and I were absolutely down for it. And at the same time, um, Pierre Carter and sort of, I guess his, his other, his sidekick, um, a chap called Jeremy Holcroft up in Joburg, who, and he flew off Everest last year. Um, he was the first person to do it legally. Um, they were also looking at Pakistan and what could they do? Um, and so, so we had a call between us and I didn't really, I'd never met Pierre at this stage. And it was like, look, do we think we can, we can muddle along and that, you know, we, we're going to keep each other safe. And it seemed like, yeah, this, this, this could work. And it was sort of going to be Andy and I as buddies and then Pierre and Jeremy as buddies. Um, and then in the autumn I was in South Africa and I got to know Scott a bit. And then at Christmas spent more time with Scott. And um, and Scott was like, I'd really like to come on this. And it's like, eh, you got the experience. Um, so slightly unsure. Um, and then we had had more chats. And then Scott proved incredibly useful when, sadly, a pilot in South Africa crashed. Um, he didn't end up making it, but Scott uh, did a hell of a lot in terms of trying to do logistics to try to give him the best possible chance. Mm. Um, and uh, and then we sort of, we had another discussion. Like, look, we think Scott could could be good um and andy sort of broached that with pierre and uh jeremy um and they said yeah yeah he he's welcome and uh i got in under the under the guise of organizing things for a living is what i do so <laughs> i nice. can organize yeah, <laughs> i can organize i can organize you, things. you need that yeah. you need that person on a team i can fix i can fi- yeah i can i can fix is my that's my gig you're a fixer <laughs> I'm a fixer. Yeah, I'm a fixer. So, so I th- so I threw oxygen at um at Scott. Then the everyone else decided they would go to Hunza for two weeks before going to the Baltore. Um, I just simply couldn't do that with work, so I got an altitude tent. Um, instead, so so, um, every morning the daily stand up would start with. So, what altitude were you sleeping at last night? Did you get any sleep? Um, my very first night. I may not have read the instructions quite as well as I should have done. Um, and I woke up after two hours sort of going, holy, uh, I feel, I don't feel very well. Um, so uh, I sort of opened the, opened the tent and just was there. <gasps> uh, and uh, I discovered that I'd gone straight to 6,000 meters. Um, Perfect. So, so while climatizing Bob, an evening. So, so while... So while Bob's was sitting in an altitude tent in London, Andy, myself, Pierre, and Jeremy um, went to Hunza for 12 days. It was our major acclimatization time, um, was 12 days prior in Hunza. Um, Andy, uh, and we, we coined the house thermal Andy's thermal because from pretty much the first day, Andy used to, would launch, go straight into the thermal and be close on 6,000 meters sort of 20 minutes later, all in one climb. Whoa. Um, it how, is, how high is yeah. Hansa? 
So I mean, uh, Hunza, three thousand meters. Yeah, three thousand yeah. meters. Yeah. Okay. Take, wow. Take off three thousand yeah, meters, Andy. What was the floor? The floor was um, the bottom of the the the, the designated landing was about two thousand two hundred, I think, and the mountains up the back of Hunza. Who topped out there the most? Was it Jeremy? Um, but well over yeah, six thousand. About six five. So six five. You just take a house thermal to sixty five hundred. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. So Andy's yeah. Andy's Andy's we named it Andy's thermal, and it was the day's the day's mission was to try and chase Andy in his first thermal of the day um, so up some, to the top. Some quick math there. That's eleven twelve thousand feet over the valley floor. No, more thirteen fourteen thousand feet over the valley floor. That's a that's a spectacular. that's good it's quite something yeah Yeah, it's quite something amazing so on these kind of uh altitude you know getting adjusted flights were you pushing into the big terrain were you kind of okay let's let's go for some little xc or were you guys literally just uh you know taking what you could and and getting some altitude and getting some some time under your belts well i'll answer that we um i mean the flying hunters is really good um we did, um, in all those acclimatizing and training flights, they, I mean, pretty much every day we did triangles. So anything from a 60K triangle to a 100K triangle, we found that when we got there, um, there was a lot of snow from the winter, which hadn't cleared off earlier. And actually, when Antoine did you get there? Much, uh, in the beginning of June. Beginning of June, uh, okay. The, the beginning of June and, 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 and so we found on the snowy side of things, on the Rakiposhi side, there was a lot of uh, downdraft, catabatic winds. So we so we pretty much stayed on the other side, um, which would be the which would be the the south east side. And um, we found that you know we could still get pretty good, pretty decent climbs there. So it was basically you know twelve days of just really nice cross country flying, big triangles. Um, and uh, you know, just testing out all the warm gear and the oxygen and all that sort of stuff. What would be involved in going from that, you know, sixty hundred k triangles to the mission? What 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 needed to happen for those like me who haven't looked very closely at maps of this area in a while? What do you what what needed to happen on the day, on the day that you're going to try to do it? Um, you mean on the record-breaking day? Yeah. What 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 would have to what would be involved in making that? Obviously, good weather, but what would what what does that route look like? How long is it? How how much time would it take? Well, I mean, flying from in the Beltora, flying from where you take off in Payo to to um, up to K two isn't very far. It's about fifty k's. Oh, okay. But, so it's fifty k's there, fifty k's back. But it's in that entire flight. There's nowhere to land. It's as, as you know, as Tom said, the Baltora Glacier. You got to think of it as lava. Um, I mean, you could land there, but you'll crash and you will get injured badly. So mm-hmm. it's it's so it's highly committing. Um, basically, you're flying over this river of ice with boulders and rocks and lakes and all sorts of things. Um, so the transition from Hunza to the Baltora that. The flying is very similar. Um, I mean, it's you know you you find a nice 
uh, to rocky sunny face and there'll be a climb there and you, you know you just bounce from thermal to thermal and peak to peak and so on and so on but the difference between Hunza and the Baltoro is the level of commitment. In, okay. I mean, in Hunza, there's there's fields to land on anyway. You just one glide away from a landing. In the Baltoro, there's no way to land. Yeah. Okay. Big Barb's, you look like you want to talk. You keep putting your hand up. Yeah. There. No. Just it was just I think so. Obviously, Hunza is about 130 kilometers away from the Baltoro Glacier. Okay. So, so so the the, those guys spent um, two weeks in uh, in Hunza, then they spent a day in a sort of in, in the back of Land Rovers, sort of being driven from Hunza to Skardu, which is sort of the staging post, if you like, the city that's closest to the Baltoro. Okay. Um, and and then you have a day's um, drive up to a place called Ascoli. Um, uh, and on that journey, depending when you go, depends on how uh, how sketchy that drive is. Um, on the way up, it was still early enough that there wasn't that much water coming down. But by the time I came out in a vehicle, there were a few landslides that had been down. Um, there was so much water coming down the fordable rivers that they were no longer fordable. So you had sort of one Land Rover and then another Land Rover, you, you'd walk over a dodgy little um, uh, couple of um, pieces of wood to get across the, across this raging torrent, over the top of the raging torrent. And then you get into a different uh, Land Rover and then go down the next bit, across another one, and then down the next bit. And so, and so the, what a company like Jasmine Tours does is they organize to have these cars which are doing shuttles between unfordable rivers. Wow. Um, and then once you've got to Ascoli, you then have a two-day walk into uh, to get to pay you. Um, you can do it in a day, but even if you can do it in a day, your kit and everything else isn't going to do it in a day because that's with the porters. And there's only so far when they can walk when they're carrying all this kit at 2,800 meters. Um, it's 25 degrees in the valley, absolutely scorching um it's amazing how strong the sun is and these these guys are carrying 50 50 kilograms they're mm. carrying 50 kilograms per person so they'll they'll carry two uh, two glider bags for example quite comfortably um when they walk in i think the hey, the, hey. the the logistics smoothed over by someone like jasmine tours is is uh is quite substantial it's quite rough logistics um it's, but i think like, gavin your actual question was it was was towards what were the weather conditions like as in when would you call it was no was, not yet I, let's let's get to that no I, i'm trying to understand the logistics so the the you can't then you can't start at hunza and do this mission you've got to you've got to do these overland things to get into a better zone you can't fly from hunza and and fly to schoolie for example or paiu what was the other one the paiu and you can't you can't do it by so air the, Yes and no. I mean, you, well, it's all driven. It's all driven. Okay. So you fly from, so our, Andy and my logistics were, we fly into, we flew into Islamabad. We flew from Islamabad to Gilgit, um, which is a commercial flight, beautiful through the mountains. Um, and then from Gilgit, you take, what was it, a two hour um, car drive um, to Hunza. Then we were okay. based in Hunza. The, the logistics in Hunza are 
amazingly easy. It's a little town. You can get oxygen at the local welding shop. Um, and uh, it, it all takes a little bit longer than you would expect or than you might hope. But it's all manageable and it all, it all happened. Um, okay. We stayed in, in a really nice hotel um, called the Hard Rock Hotel, which is a 20-minute walk from launch, which was absolutely amazing. Um, as well, 20-minute walk up to launch. They've got a nice set of five flags outside. You can see all the wind direction. Absolutely perfect. And then flying in Hunza, as Andy was saying, is relatively easy. You've got plenty of places to land, and there's plenty of big flying there. Um, We then drove with Pierre and Jeremy up the Karakoram Highway, which is spectacular in itself. Um, And that we did in a minivan, perfectly comfortable, um, lots of rock falls along the way. And then we got through to Skardu. Um, and Skardu's that town that's like the base of operations for all of the mountaineering and all of the big treks of people going to going into um, the Baltoro K2 and all of the peaks you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And then it's a day's Jeep drive on the scariest road I've ever been on. It's carved into the side of scree slopes. Like you just like the the ground that the road is on is the same as the ground that's that's <laughs> rolling ground. down the mountain it's yeah. like it's yeah but they they're, they're again they're amazing and bobs and i were with a driver that must have been in his 60s maybe mid to late 60s maybe the early 70s and the guy drove the hell out of his toyota land cruiser like old school land cruiser felt per, didn't, didn't feel overly safe in the beginning but then realized actually how good he was um and then you get to, as Bob said, Escoli, and that's a camp in a village. The most, yeah, that's a camp in a village. Okay. And then you walk, and then you walk from there. And okay. that's where, so you are, you, the, the last part of it, you can't fly to. Bob's flew into Skardu, so he didn't do the whole roundabout trip. He had one day's Jeep drive in. Um, okay. And then we all started. So we all did the Jeep drive in together and the walk into the Baltoro. And from, from, from there, what are you looking at to get to launch? What's, what's required for the day? Now, now I'm asking the weather question. So, um, the, the weather, we worked out that uh, I've been a fan of soaring meteo for years because it's super simple, really easy to see what's what. And actually, I found a really quite good interpretation of, of how Soaring Meteo, so what, what that was saying and what that meant for the conditions in the Baltoro. Um, basically, if there was any sort of big lines of cloud, then it was going to be overdeveloped in hell. Um, and uh, if there were little, if it was saying little clouds and the cloud base was saying five and a half, you could probably could basically add somewhere between 500 meters to 1,000 meters to whatever it was saying okay. for within the Baltoro. Um, so that 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 was that was quite helpful. That was quite helpful. Um, so on any given day when we were going to fly, we walk up from base camp at Peyu, which is at three thousand three hundred, and it's the last camp before the glacier itself starts. Walk up to four thousand meters. Um, we we use porters to carry our bags up um, because, well, why wouldn't you? Um, at nine euros, um, it's uh, and. I, I slightly messed up with kit, so I ended up having to have a very heavy kit. Uh, so uh, so I had an impress for uh, 
Uh, and so I was carrying 28, well, my kit was, total was 28 kilos, but Porter would carry the kit and then I'd carry the warm kit and the oxygen, that stuff up, up in a little day bag. Um, so you get up to launch for about around 11, um, by which time the it would be starting to come up the hill. In the valley, the caspatic would be still still blowing, but not hard. Um, but that's sort of almost helped with an easterly because it'd be coming down the, down the glacier, which is running sort of uh, east-west. So it'd be coming down down the uh, down the glacier, um, and then it's then actually the flying itself is pretty simple. Um, you know, it's uh, at four thousand meters and it's hot. Uh, it, you uh, the, there isn't a lot of air, um, so 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 takeoff is fast. Um, and it's it's scree and it's steep. Um, you know, it's if you mess up a takeoff there, it's gonna hurt a lot. Um, you're probably gonna be okay, but being a scree slope, you'll sort of bounce and slide, and you're gonna bounce and slide a long way. It's gonna you, you're gonna smart for a while. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, once you take off, then there was a thermal to the left, a thermal to the right, and and you kind of just pretty much certainly while we were there, we just sort of pinged up pretty fast after that and then you sort of kind of is a lot of the, that is a lot of the forecasting you, you said soaring meadow worked pretty well but is a lot of the forecasting just you know licking your finger and sticking it out in the weather or or they're pretty reliable models is it is no, so, so, so soaring meadow model worked really really well hmm. the big problem is once you go into the baltoro there is no mobile reception at all uh, yeah it there even the satellite reception at Peyu Base Camp is almost non-existent. Wow. You have to kind of, it takes 15, 20 minutes for an in-reach message to get out a lot of the time because it's got to wait for a heli- for a satellite to be in just the right place because um, it's got a bloody great steep mountain behind you. So, so, so that meant that although I had absolutely learned how to interpret the weather, I was then having to ask sort of people on, on, uh, via the inReach going, hey, can you give me the weather forecast for tomorrow? Um, this is what I'm interested in. And I get some, I get these different messages back. And then it was a case of trying to imagine what Soaring Meteo was actually saying from that to then work out what the weather was going to be. Hmm. Um, and that was a sort of, so, so a learning point was you need to really have a fully briefed person who absolutely understands what it is you want from a weather forecast. And the other problem was the people providing the weather forecast did not want to say it looks great if there's any risk at all because they don't want to feel responsible if yeah. you then crash and smash yourself up on the Baltoro. You know, once you take off, as Andy says, you go up the Baltoro, there are no landing options. You have to make it back. So you've got to make 50K, you got to make 100K, 50K out, 50K back. Uh, and you you've got to make it there's nowhere you're you're not slow planting in the scree you're not you're not landing on the glacier that's just game over it you got to make it Pro, pretty much and and certainly that should be the attitude of anyone flying there yeah um is that 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 you know um tom described it as lava and that for me was a really good description because it just said you know you don't land on lava um and, and, and it, that was certainly the mindset that I went there with. Not that I really got to fly very far up the glacier just because of circumstances, but for, for me, that was something I never wanted to to get into a risk of. Yeah, um, I mean, and I, I certainly know that Andy felt the same about that. 
and Andy, you've got obviously the most glacier experience, I'm sure, of anyone here. But uh, there, there were a couple of glacier crossings I had to undertake in in Alaska when I did the the thing up there with Dave Turner. And luckily, you know, after the first one, I flew over the rest because walking across this thing was just mind-bendingly difficult uh, and 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 incredibly dangerous. But it was just uh, they they present things that you can't see from the air. And it's just a maze. I, I don't know how the Baltoro is, but I imagine if it's similar, uh, that was not something I ever wanted to repeat. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, glacier, basically, basically glacier travel is um, time consuming, shall we say. And it, you yes. Know, <laughs> it's just the worst it's maze problem easier. ever. Exactly. It's much easier to fly over them. The yes. Balfora um, doesn't have snow on it until, you know, much higher up on the Gashabrim side and the, and just underneath K2. It's basically just um, ice and uh, gravel and pebble and rocks and... Uh, Rivers. Yeah, 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 sort of rivulets. So it looks brown. It doesn't look white, but it's, it, but it's nasty. It's, it's convoluted, jumbled, um, and not something that you can land safely. Mm. Um, last year, Ramos did land in the middle of Broad Peak Base Camp. He sunk out there. Um, and also something to consider, I mean, the Baltoro starts at 3,300 and goes up to 5,200. And, and I mean, just with the air density, you're flying much, much faster. So, you, you know, you can't just sink it into a little tight spot anymore. You need a proper mm. runway because you're going to come in fast and hard. Yeah, right. Yeah, that that does catch a lot of people out, you know, places like Peru and that kind of thing. Your, your speeds are, I remember John Sylvester always talking about the, that, you know, he, he really liked flying a much lower end glider in the really big terrain just because of the speeds, you know, you, you don't want the Enzo speed anymore. You, you want something that you can manage when you're trying to stick it in. Yeah, for sure. That's why um, all of us on our trip, we all had sea gliders. Um, you know, we thought about it. Um, um, basically, basically, Bob's and Jeremy had had the new photon. I had an Alpina, and um, 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 and then Scott had a Nivek. Pierre had a um, Pierre had another Xenon, but it was an older one. That's a D, but it was four years old. So I we sort of thought it flew about the same as a C. Yeah, you know, pretty similar, pretty similar machines. So, so when you get you know, quote unquote, the day, it looks, looks pretty good. I'm, I'm imagining, I've been told that flying in Pakistan is in, in a lot of ways, pretty straightforward. It's kind of like beer. There's, there's, there's not a lot of wind. I mean, obviously it, you, you've got to deal with the catabatics. You've got to deal with things. It's big terrain, but on good days, it's pretty straight, pretty straightforward. But I would imagine there's a little pucker factor here doing this thing, flying over all this terrain that's unlandable, or is it that straightforward? Is it the kind of thing you, you launch, you get in this thermal and okay, this is going to work. This is straightforward. We can do this. So I'm going to, as the, as the most junior of the pilots, I will say um, there's definitely a pucker factor. Um, from my point of view, I suppose for, from everyone, you've got to wrap your head around it. Um, it's why Hunza was quite important because it is such big terrain. I've flown prior to this a couple of times in the Alps, but not flown any really big mountains. And then suddenly when you're looking at, as we discussed earlier, when you're sitting at 
six, like Andy got to six and a half thousand in Hunza, and you're looking down at the floor, it's uh, two thousand. It's four. It's over four kilometers in that uh, in that distance. Um, so definitely a case of buck up and huck it, um, as well as uh, obviously all the the planning and the right conditions to um, to boot. But one of the big one of the big warnings that uh, about flying in the area that and Antoine actually um, said to us was, it's one thing when you have overdevelopment when you have a cloud a slightly lower cloud base so um, five to seven thousand and you start having overdevelopment. But he really warned and he's fl- he's flown a lot in the in the area. He like strongly warned. He was like when you have cloud base between seven and eight thousand. And you have overdevelopment in at that height. He he said it happens r- much quicker, so mm-hmm. much much quicker than 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 anything lower. The overdevelopment happens much quicker. So his big one of his big warnings was, yeah, if you if you start to see it overdeveloping or developing um, between seven and eight thousand, then you need to go home. Yeah. Um, Aaron, Aaron talked about that too. You know, he had those huge triangles there last year, but talked about if there was any sign of overdevelopment, it's game over. You, you, you know, your, your exits uh, start shrinking really fast because you've, you're high, it takes, takes some time to get on the ground. And I would imagine, you know, with this, with this flight out to K2, out to Baltoro, if you're high enough, is, are there places to run? Can you get over into another valley? Could you? Are there escape routes, or you're you're trapped? You, this you're this is the mission. You got to get in. You got to get out. This is you got to make it work. So so with the Baltoro, it being this one valley that goes basically east west, and then you go as you head east, um, you get to a place called looking at Tom's tracks, and to an extent, Tom and Horatio have done all the hard work, and to and uh, Antoine as well in terms of highlighting you can even see on um, some of the apps you can see the where the thermals are and they are they are beautifully predictable but then you have to hop over to k2 but before that literally you can just run down the run back down the uh, the baltoro to the end of it which is at the end of it is pay you camp so as long as you're in the main valley you can get there in theory the only problem is that you know mashabram is still over 7,000 meters. You've got even Payu, which no one really bothers climbing, that's 6,400 meters. And behind that is Chiricho, which is um, 6,500 meters. Um, you've got the Trango Towers next door, which are the Trango Towers. You know, it's just it's just the scale of the mountains that are everywhere. So if it's ODing in one place, the chances are it's yeah. ODing everywhere. So, yeah, so, yeah. Hence so you why, just don't play with that. OD, you just got you're just getting home yeah um but of course you're going fast i mean our trim speed was on the hottest day i think it was actually on the first day um we we were sort of turning around it's like okay wind's got to be that way because i'm doing 49ks an hour at trim um and then you turn around and you're doing 49ks back the other way it's like ha okay this is going to be a fast landing um, and then you try pressing the speed bar and you can do over set you can do over 70 in both directions um just just and because you've got the height to play with when you're going out you can 
and it, it's quite it's quite novel. I mean, so in a perfect world, you're out 50k. You you you're out at the end, and you're tall. Assuming you're you know you picked a good day, and you're trying to break the record. You're tall. You turn around, and you're you're a glide from being back. <laughs> you don't have Pretty to work much, very yeah. hard. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, so what happened? <laughs> are we are we at that point yet? Can we talk about yeah, that? Yeah, I think we probably are. Some more probably beyond it, to be honest. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, so let, let's uh, so, let's throw this Andy, to, I think, to, to Andy. I think yeah, I, I think Andy should start on this, and then because really, it's it's his it's it's his story combined with a bit of. Um, what I'd normally describe as fuckwittery. I'm not sure whether that can make it onto the. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Totally. Yeah, totally. We, we're we're actually. Let's, way, let's go for it. <laughs> All right. So after being in Honza, we um, we had um, um, we made our way to the Baltora, and we had a really nice um, checkout flight the first day. Um, then the next day we went up and. Um, um, we had uh, let's we had allowed ourselves two weeks in the Baltora. So on the second day, um, we started the seven hundred meter walk up, which was quite steep, um, and I had um, a, a very tight neck, and I thought, oh, it you know, it's just a respiratory infection um, that we would get, and actually, Pierre had one of those as well um, because Pai is not a very clean place. There's you know, there's donkeys and porters and all these mountaineering expeditions come through, so it's incredibly dusty and dirty. So so then in a way we walked up, um, chest pain started getting worse and worse. And um, so I thought, let me just put some oxygen on, then the chest pain's lowered. And I, I mean, the wind's perfect. I've got this chest pain. I, I didn't think that it, I thought it was going to go away. Um, we all took off. Um, <clears throat> and about an hour later, over the Tranga Towers, it got really bad. On a scale of one to ten, I'd say about eight. And I realized, in terms of pain, in terms of pain, and I realized, oh shit, I'm having a heart attack in midair above the Tranga Towers, wow. which is not a nice place to have a heart attack. <laughs> oh no! So, I mean, the heart so, pumping. I, I'm gonna, breathing. yeah, I'm but, gonna back it up there a little bit and just say. Um, give like uh, uh, I suppose add a bit of the humorous side to that. Andy Andy is saying that I mean he's saying that he was at pain level eight on the radio comms. Um, on the radio comms, he's like calm as a cucumber. He's <laughs> un like so from as Andy climbed as Andy climbed up and obviously started to have the chest pains. Um, he flew out at about five five, I think, Andy. You flew out about five thousand five hundred meters. He flew out from the from the gaggle. We were in a nice gaggle flying. Andy flew out, and uh, I think I radioed him and was like, "Hey, Andy, where are you going?" Because we were all kind of flying together. And he was like, "No, I'm, I'm not feeling so good. I'm just going to put on my oxygen." So he flew out of the of the kind of more busy air and put on his oxygen. He came back and joined us. Mm. And we flew for a bit longer. And I think that was when we were in Trango Towers. And Andy flew out again. And as you heard him say, he he was at pain eight. And I said to him again, hey, Andy, where are you going? Like, all okay. I'd seen him knocking his chest while walking up, which was when he was... Uh, so it didn't really register at the time, but... 
Um, you know, and he said that he'd, he'd, he'd not been feeling great. That's why he went to put the oxygen on. So I said, Andy, everything okay? And he was like, yeah, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling so good. I'm, I'm, I'm going to head back to camp. I'm going to go land. But don't worry about me. You guys just stay and do your thing. Enjoy your flight. And off he started. But this so wasn't this, this wasn't the flight you were going to try this on. This is just a checkout flight. You, you guys are just goofing around in the air, having fun, or 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 you were, or are you kind of playing with it. Oh, maybe we got the day. Well, um, what we were doing, we were basically just exploring all the thermals on the way up the okay. Dalpora. Um, okay. The day was pretty stable, beautiful blue sky and everything. But the but I mean the you know the the top of the climbs would have been about six thousand five hundred, no more than that. That's the okay. forecast we had. So um, it, it wasn't a day to get very high above 8,000 meters. I think you need slightly different weather conditions. You need a heat low or you need a little more instability or you need a little, or you need a little more wind. You need different factors. So Andy, you're, you're experiencing this, you know, pretty severe chest pain. Is this, is this something you had experienced on previous climbing expeditions? Was this something totally new? You know, were any, any red flags going off other than heart attack? Was it, was it, uh, you know, it was, were you thinking, Hey, pace, were you thinking something along those lines or were you pretty clear what was going on? Well, um, I didn't, I've I've never had any medical problems like that before, ever. Huh. And, you know, my family's got no history of heart attacks or anything. But there was just this incredibly tight chest. I didn't think of it as a heart attack at the time. I thought, well, I've just got massive angina, which is very tight chest. Um, and as I said, you know, I've never, I've, in in all my prior mountaineering, I've, I've acclimatized easily. Um, and never had any problems. So yeah. it came as a bolt out of the blue. And yeah. uh, funnily enough, it was one of those things afterwards you can see, okay, prime risk factor, you know, basically middle-aged man, um, not acclimatized, um, up high, there's not enough oxygen getting to the heart. I mean, it's clear as daylight. And um, we can talk about, you know, the, the mitigating factors that we could have taken beyond that. But the point was here I found myself at 5,500 meters and it was a mortal feeling. It's like, this is not right, guys. Um, I can die from this. So all I wanted to do was get down on the ground. So that's what happened is a long 30 minute glide from five, five, 6,000 meters down to 3,300. Um, and, uh, it's one of that those instinctual things. I need to get down into the ground. I need to uh, sort out this chest pain. So I landed okay. Um, Bob's also landed ne next to me okay. And then because we were buddy flying, um, the five of us would basically fly together and not, you know, for uh, from a safety point of view. When I said I'm going to turn around, Bob's, Bob's and uh, Scott both, join me so um that uh, you know after an hour and a half that sort of cut short their flight but this as i said it was it, it was a mortal feeling i needed to get down so we all landed scott unfortunately had um um, um i guess the word would be Sli um, slightly landing harder fixation. landing than yeah yeah landing fixation yeah, slightly harder landing that uh 
than I than I needed to. But I, yeah, I mean, we were chatting. So in that half an hour where where Andy kind of left Chango, and I think I think we left there just just under six thousand in there in the ends and the long glide home. We, um, Bob's and I, obviously there's like, there's all this time. So there's all this, there was half an, there was half an hour glide. Um, or yeah, close on half an hour glide. Um, obviously checked in on Andy a couple of times. Again, the, the radio comms is on some of our camera footage. Andy always like, eh, Andy just checking in on you. And he'd be like, yeah, chest pains. Um, still there. Um, I'm just going to go. La- I, w- I want to land quickly. He was like quite very calm and collected. Um, we all, I suppose, knew that it was quite serious because no one would have landed uh, before. And um, I, I was watching to see where Andy. And it was my 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 saying to myself is the classic airline saying: "With it's put your own mask on first, like." When the air, when the when the oxygen mask come down, put your own mask on first, and then help the help. Yeah, don't make the situation worse. The, yeah, and um, I was watching Andy because I was like, I wasn't I wasn't totally sure how he was going to land or where he was going to land or if he was still up for landing. Um, but I fixated on watching Andy and made the cardinal error of not putting my mask on first, and mm-hmm. I landed. Um, a little bit quicker than what I had, than than what I should have. But um, I I rolled my I rolled my leg over a, over a boulder. My my actual injury is not that bad. Um, it's just a broken fibula, and I tore the ligaments off. But um, the what made it worse is the fact that I landed the other side. Andy landed a hundred two hundred meters from camp. I landed a hundred meters from Andy. Um, but I landed the other side of the river. Um, so it earned me a four hour walk home um, <laughs> on a broken ankle, which at, I took, I took some, uh, we had some, our med kit was really well organized. Um, and we all had little flying med kits as well. I had some tramazol in there, which is like Oxycontin, um, which from when I did rally biking stuff, also you, Make sure you carry a bunch of really hardcore painkillers just to get you through the first part. Um, so I ate two of those, and they make you a little bit funny. Um, so I did a video, I did like a video interview with myself where I did a splint on my leg. Um, Andy sorted out the med, all the med kits for us. We had an expedition doctor put a list together. Andy did all the ordering, so we had like a nice leg splint. Um, I bandaged myself, and I took. I took my four hour walk home um, all the time chatting to the guys again, Andy in such tough nut uh, uh, spirits that we had a little negotiation with the porters as to what they were going to charge us um, to come and pick me up. And uh, Andy in the middle of his scenario was still um, yeah, holding it together enough to organize to, to send them my way. And by then, Bob's had landed. He took a bit of a tumble on landing as well. And then Bob's, I mean, you, you had, yeah, you, you, you kind of took over the, um, you, you rolled with things from there. And, and that's, I suppose, where the crux of this is. So, so, so yeah, so, um, I was the last to land by about, um, we actually all landed within 45 seconds of each other. Mm. Um, Scott landed, landed, um, first. 
um, it was all on, on video. Then Andy landed about uh, 15, 20 seconds later, um, but in the perfect spot. And actually, it was the best landing of the three of us. Um, the day before, we had agreed that one of the things I'm always keen on is that everyone focuses on spot landings. So we'd agreed that he who lands the furthest from the uh, um, from the windsock would have to pump the water. Um, <laughs> because and, and that's a way of just sort of getting everyone to be focused on on something that matters. Um, so Pierre, so you're trying to nicely went, say that Scott really messed this up. <laughs> well, and Bob's well, and Bob's yeah, is not I mean, shy I mean, of random. I would put it differently to that, but, um, <laughs> but I'll come to that in a second. And, and uh, Scott may want to come back at me. Um, so, so, so uh, Pierre and um, Jeremy had put the windsock up, and I'd said, "Look, closest to the windsock is the key thing." What they didn't tell me was they put it on the edge of a boulder field. So, so was a spot I'm landing, Bob's. I'm it trying was meant to get to be a spot landing. The... You weren't meant to land in the boulder field. It was to land. <laughs> no, no, I, I was landing with it. I landed you within twenty feet. You misinterpreted it. You misinterpreted. <laughs> I landed within twenty feet. It's a good anyway, thing you guys are all a long ways apart in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. No, I can see the the, p- the punches are coming out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, I, I did my little roadie pony down the, uh, which is on video with my three sixty camera underneath me because I had it dangling down. So that gets a nice picture of me doing a roadie pony. Um, <laughs> and anyway, I then sort of was like, okay, yeah, I'm all good. And I'd asked Scott if he was okay. And he initially said he was fine. Then he's like, I twisted my ankle quite badly. And then sort of later on, then, so I went over and looked at Andy. Andy was like, yeah, no, I'm not feeling great. I'm just going to chill for a bit. Can you help me pack up my kit? So I help him pack up his kit, pack up my kit. Um, I give him my oxygen, give him my water. Then I'm like, I run up to camp to go and get uh, the, med, the big med kit. Um, which was meant to have some um, the special heart attack spray stuff, the thing you put under your tongue, um, but couldn't find that. But got back down to Andy, we got him to some shade, and Scott <laughs> comes on the radio and says, "Guys, um, I'm kind of cooking out here um, in the uh, in in the heat." In the I'm episode. starting to burn. Can you? S- <laughs> I'm starting to burn, and the pain's starting to set in. Oh. And, and I was like, and I give a shit not at all yeah. <laughs> bobs you were very so, sweet you, at the you, time. you've landed in the mr barbara you were very you were very sweet at the time you don't, don't i really don't. wasn't you should have heard me to andy um, <laughs> <laughs> i was furious <laughs> um and uh, even andy was like what was he thinking landing on the wrong side of the river it's like don't ask me um, so, so anyway, um, a couple of immediate lessons were when I went up to camp, I didn't actually know exactly where the medikit was. Mm. Um, and okay. I, we, there are only, only five tents and, um, to, to go through and, um, it was in Scott's tent, but actually it was at the back underneath two other bags and it's a big medikit. So I, was, I found it, but it wasn't a case of just going and grabbing the medkit. Um, and that was a really stupid mistake to start with. That let's we didn't... let's let, stop there for one second. You gave me a list yesterday. Yeah. What you guys did right and what you did wrong. Can you pull that out? You got it in front of you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Can you just take us through that? Because it's, it's fantastic. And you know, if, if certain things need elaboration, go for it. I, 
you know, they all seem pretty self-explanatory, but I think in terms of the takeaways here, uh, because I, I want to ask more about Andy's injury and Andy, how you felt and all those kind of things, but uh, this is a good segue. I think it's a great chance for, for you all to review this as well, but also the listeners, because it's, uh, you know, again, we always learn everything too late. We learn it afterwards, but this, it, you know, hopefully this can help all of us listening to learn from your mistakes. And in a sense, it wasn't a tragedy, but uh, it was, but it was, you know, things went wrong. And of course we, we learned from that. So take us through that first. What, what did you do? Right. Yeah. So I think one of the things we did right was we spoke to everyone. Um, you know, I reached out, reaching out to Antoine, Tom Dodorolo, Jake Holland, um, other people who, who, who'd flown, flown there as well. Um, logistics wise, speaking to the head of the Pakistani Paragliding Association Advance, um, Jasmine Tours, Brad Sander, um, who was super helpful as well. Um, I also, spent a bit of time talking to Fabian Blanco um, just about the mental side and, you know, what, what did he see as the, the biggest potential gotchas for us? And he particularly talked about the exposure aspect um, and that you needed to be, you may not be able to get the same exposure, but make sure you have some exposure. Put yourself in situations which are uncomfortable because mm. you don't want the first uncomfortable situation you have to be um, over the Baltoro um at six thousand something meters and things going a bit wrong and you having no no um capacity to deal with that because you've never had to deal with it before mm. good advice um, then the next one we did right was from a medical perspective um i uh reached out to matt wilkes and he nearly joined us but work meant that he couldn't um but he put together a comprehensive list of what we should have um and andy's wife's actually a former expedition doctor as well and she sort of helped too so so you know we covered there the logistics the flying the mental side of things um we also made sure that we all had appropriate adequate insurance global we all had global rescue we all had good travel insurance we all had paid the garment bid as well we and we were we all knew that we all had that that was something that was super important um we all did a lot of prep um, although, you know, it was quite different um, in terms of what we did. Um, and then equipment wise, we had uh, we had an Excel spreadsheet running um, on Google Docs so everyone could com compare. We could see what everyone had. Um, I think we made pretty good choices on wings and reserves. Uh, one thing I would recommend, though, is check your reserves going to fit into your harness before you buy the really expensive, really large reserve because <laughs> you're not going to be able to sell it back again. Um, so that was a bit of an error. Um, then, uh, um, I, I think, you know, I was very lucky. I managed to get some sponsorship from Virgin for my wing. Um, the, there were a few connections to, uh, in terms of Richard Branson went to the same school as me. He did all sorts of aviation stuff, which is pretty crazy. Um, and I managed to get it to someone reasonably hard there and they just loved the idea and they were like, yeah, we'd love to support this. Mm. Um, and for them, it, I wasn't asking for for the trip to be sponsored. It was something that I was doing anyway. So so they were happy to. And, you know, I'm hoping to go back next year. Um, acclimatization wise, and this also goes to the exposure thing. The other guys went to, to Hunza. Um, I did a whole bunch of SIV on my own, which doing SIV 
with someone on the radio is very different from just going out and pulling stalls on your own. Um, also then mountain flying and with Scott and with Andy flying in the, in the Northern Cape, sort of pushing putting yourself somewhere where if things go wrong, it's going to be consequential very quickly. Um, then I would say the buddy flying, um, we, we did, uh, we did it, and even when Andy said, "Ah, you don't need to bother. You're only we're within gliding distance of uh, of landing," we 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 actually still stood by the the buddy flying rules, and I think yeah, that ultimately was was very important. Mm. Um, we then with the inreaches, um, inreach comms are not that easy if you don't get it set up properly in advance, um, and that getting that right. And having the right message in the admin section, so including your health insurance details, your travel insurance details, your credit card details, um, that we're paraglider pilots. If we've crashed, it's serious. We're going to need immediate help. Um, and, you know, we, we survived. We're all alive. We're all still friends. Um, and that's uh, that's not always a given. Mm. Um, so th- those, I think, are the things that I would say we did right. I don't know if anyone has anything they want to add to that. I think we did the. I, I, sorry, I'm going to be a little bit more esoteric and say the, the first thing we did right was to, to uh, dream big enough to go and do this because mm. that's also yeah. it's it's it's, I mean, Bob's is going going to go through a very, um, well put together list of things that we could have done better, um, or that we did wrong, um, but going putting the effort into to doing something like this, going to everybody seems to think that Pakistan is this really far off place that is is dangerous and hard to get to. Like these things are a possibility with the right things in place, with the right suppliers. I mean, we've mentioned Jasmine Tours a number of times, but also because they were so good with the organization on the front end. But when things went wrong, they were very good um, with things on the back end as well. Um, mm. These things are like these trips are 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 more possible than um, what people think. So mm. one thing, so so back to big thing we did right is all actually put the time you aside and have, have and, yeah. and yeah, like actually have a crack at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've only got this one, one, uh, one time on this rock. We might as well go for it. Might as well crack, have a crack at things, but yeah, absolutely. Sure. Okay. So what, what did you, what, what things that you could have improved? Yeah, so to an extent, I've already touched on it. We had numerous protocols in place, like buddy flying and stuff. But in reality, we should have had more. And there are elements where we should have had more robust agreements in advance. Um, And it's something I discussed with Matt Wilkes um, yesterday as well, um, just to get his take, because, you know, he's been an expedition doctor on a lot of expeditions and he flies and he's, he was just, I thought he'd be a useful person to bounce things off in advance. And you know, overall, his view is we did well. Um, you know, when, when, when things went wrong, we, we did a pretty decent job between us in terms of getting, getting everyone, everyone got out alive. Um, and, you know, but things we didn't do, which we should have done, we didn't all have medicals. Um, you know, in some ways, I'm probably, aside from Jeremy, probably the, I'm, Younger than uh, Andy and Pierre, and probably fit. No, you're middle aged, Bob's. You're middle aged. Yeah, I'm still middle aged, but I do a lot. Um, 
but but we didn't have an agreed fitness standard that mm. that, that we needed to be at. And we didn't have medicals done, all, all of us. And we really should have done. By medicals, um, you mean going to have a cardiac test and that kind of thing, like this kind yeah, of stuff you do yeah. before the so, exercise. Okay. So, so when I when I did an expedition race, adventure race a few years ago, we all had to go and do a VO two max test, sort of, you know, where, and where they did the whole EC, the ECG, and they had proper cardiologists to to actually do the analysis of that to make sure that there wasn't anything funky that was going on with your heart. Mm. Um, as, because that's obviously, if you're doing anything like that, that that's kind of an important thing. Um, so so that, that was something which was, was really a big miss. Um, it, it, but it's still possible that had we done that, Andy's one might not have been picked up. Yeah, sure. If, if, if he had really pushed it hard on, on the treadmill, it probably would have been, particularly if a cardiologist had... had had done the review and they'd been able to to look at the ischemia um according to that's what matt said then yeah it would probably have been picked up but as if that hadn't been done if it had just been a go for a medical yeah you're fit and healthy it would have he would have come out he would have come out clean yeah and from what i from what i know i mean matt would know a lot more than this i'm sure you guys talked about it but from what i know about altitude is it's it's a really fickle beast as well you know i mean like you said uh, you know, Andy's had all this experience at altitude, spent so much time, never had any trouble. You know, I've, I've had friends that have gotten really hypoxic at 13 grand, you know, where they, where you wouldn't even have usually turned on your oxygen, just a little bit too much coffee the night before, not very good sleep, maybe a beer too many. You know, there's a lot of things that can affect our physiology on the day, you know, the next day could have been totally fine at eight from what i understand it's it's just yeah no no things, that's things are true. really blood, you know blood gets thicker yeah because you've got extra hemoglobin yeah. um you've got extra red blood cells so your blood becomes naturally more stodgy um yeah. and, and so hydration you need to stay extra hydrated to keep your blood thin enough and one of the things that andy did really well was he stuffed a aspirin down his his neck when 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 he found the aspirin in the thing didn't have the spray but we had we had aspirin and he nailed um eight aspirin and that was that was pretty damn important to uh saving his life mm. um so so but yeah then you know we uh we probably sh we did all have um we had the right equipment the terrain um but everyone should have equipment terrain and exposure um experience um and i think you can't necessarily get the terrain but the exposure can always be done in a different way um and then acclimatization i would climatized in a tent i'd done my reading on it and i was comfortable that um i was happy that that was a that was a, a valid proper acclimatization that i'd have done but i never actually checked in with andy and with scott and pierre and jeremy as are you guys happy with me doing that as an acclimatization? Mm. And, and actually that's something that, you know, the checking in with each other and making sure that everyone is happy with it, each of the protocols in advance is super important because it can take a small thing that can, can really derail an expedition. Mm. Um, and yeah, that was, then that brings us on to the first aid kit. We didn't actually know, what was and was not in it. Um, we we had an original list, um, 
and then it was it was pared down to make make the the um uh to make it more manageable in terms of just you know there's only so much stuff you can take um but uh we, it probably was a mistake not to just have one person absolutely in charge of the the medical side of things you know, um talking to Matt last night had he been the expedition doctor for us he would have insisted that we all had medicals in advance that's something he, he just would have done but mm. he wasn't he, he was providing ad hoc advice uh, which was super helpful but actually probably not the best you know not what he would have done if he was engaged in a in a more professional capacity, if that makes if you, sense. If you do this again, sounds like you are, you're planning on doing this next year. Would you have an expedition doctor on scene? I'm going with Matt. No, I know you are, but, I, but, but I'm, so I'm he's, saying, I'm he's, saying he's the expedition doctor. Yeah, no, I know. But I'm saying, I'm saying, you know, just in the future, let's say you didn't have access to Matt. Would that okay, be somebody sure. you would, would pay for? Would that just be, is that, is that, a mandatory or is that you know no no, okay. no not for me uh i think if you've done if you've done the right things in advance and you've agreed all the protocols in advance and you have an evacuation plan organized and you've in effect you've done a lot of the stuff that they say an expedition doctor would do and and a lot of this is just an awful lot of this is just admin and protocols and making sure that you've done the work in advance mm. um and and that's we did quite a lot of it. We just didn't do all of it. And mm. and the point is, it's just making sure that you've done enough. And I don't think you know. In a lot of instances, um, would, would an expedition doctor make it make a difference? Well, if you've got the right pills there, that's going to help. Um, if you know, should you have a a defib in that sort of situation? Well, in reality, defib's going to help for a little bit, but. It might, it might help, but is the defib going to be with you? Yeah, gotcha. Um, so it's, the the, I mean, when we take our woofer training and paramedic training, and you know, even even first aid, you know, simple CPR at the YMCA, you know, it's always scenario based, right? They always they don't talk about it, and then you're done, and you go to the next thing. You talk about it, and then you do it. And you have a victim and you go through it. You know, it seems to me the the one, the thing I hear over and over and over again in incidents like the ones that you guys had are things like the inReach setup. You can't buy the inReach and get the plan and assume it's all going to work. You know, you've got to go through it. You've got to make sure that you've got the check marks in your social thing. So everybody that knows where you are can also message you and you've got to have the contact set up and you've got to have it paired with your phone. And they're brilliant, amazing devices uh, that are, you know, we had, we had these cat phones for the X Alps two weeks ago that, you know, have satellite technology. So in theory, you don't need the inReach, but in the reality, they didn't work like that. You know, they, they, you know, the inReach is still the de facto device that we all need to have, but you've also got to know how to use them. And, you know, these are, these are little things that can get swept under the rug when you've got a big expedition, because there's so many things you know, that have to go that, you know, your, your groups, when you're flying, just a way to contact somebody. If Andy, you know, if it hadn't gone out gone as well as it did and, 
uh, you know, who to contact, you know, who, who are, you know, you got to have a list, like you said. And so it sounds like you guys did a lot of that, right. But it's just, there's always these little things that are, you know, when I'm, when I'm getting at is it's nice to play through, okay, what if let's actually go through the, what if and get to the end and, and, you know, what's in the medical kit, let's open it up. And, you know, what, what if somebody has a heart attack, do we know how to deal with that? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, one of the things, the first time Andy actually said heart attack was in his message to uh, um, to Garmin when, when he pressed the SOS button. Mm. Um, at which point, because after he landed, I said, look, do we need to press the SOS? He said, no, I don't think so. And I was like, okay, I'm going to outsource this. I'm going to ask my brother, who's a doctor, and I'm going to ask Matt Wills. Now, by out, try, the fact that I had those as potential contacts meant that I sort of, I kind of took that responsibility away from myself to an extent, mm. which was a, which was something that makes me very glad that Andy's okay. Because yeah, you know, I know enough in terms of having done enough different first aid kit courses, stuff that I should have known. And I should have just been like, no, we're pressing the bloody button. The fact that I was like, I'm not sure about this. I want to check with a, bo- a doctor is really me saying, no, I want to press the button, but because uh, I respect you and you're a bit of a legend, I'm going to... But he didn't ever tell me my pain level in the air was eight. I thought I was going to die. Those, those things came out, but they didn't come out to the next day. And that's, so the other part is being really uh, we honest. We all have egos. <laughs> it, it, being really honest about what's happened. Mm. Yeah, Scott, you know, initially, is that, I think I've sprained my ankle and he's like, yeah, I'm in a lot of pain. But actually, realistically, he was never walking out of that. There was no way he was going to be able to walk out of that, and Andy was never going to be walking out of that. Mm. We should have been pressed. We should have pressed those buttons straight away. And I think we didn't have any protocols of who makes that decision, what are the circumstances, what needs to be true. And had we done that, it it may have meant that he got to hospital a day earlier. It might mm. not have done, but it, it it could have done, and that could, in a different scenario, have made the difference between life and death. And you know, it was a pretty uncomfortable night. That's that's Tom Dorlado's. Uh, that's Tom Dorlado's saying that I rely on all the time. If there is doubt, there is no doubt, and especially <laughs> I think. Uh, and I and I'm just adding. You, know, you guys did an amazing job, but the, you know, especially everybody's got Global Rescue. Why the hell not? You know, press the damn button. Ab- absolutely, um, and you know that that night is not a night I'll ever forget. Waking up every hour. Um, hey, Andy, are you still with us? Yes. We we took shifts. Yeah. We took shifts yeah. every hour. Yeah, One of us would uh, would shout across to Andy or go knock on his tent. Andy, you okay over there? <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. So, Andy, let's let's switch to you here for a second. We'll, Rich, we'll come back to your the list because there's there's a lot more learning there. But um, I'm just wondering what what's your frame of mind as this is going on? How are you? feeling how scared were you are you feeling like you're going to pull through or are you really kind of questionable i mean obviously you you've got the the face that you're showing to your friends and you're being brave but how how are you actually feeling okay so i've just landed um you know the you, you know the heart's thumping away chest pains and everything like that i'm very good at centering and and staying calm and that's what i needed to do so uh, so I basically put my hat on and, and I told Bob I'm just going to calm down. And I lay there um, in the blazing sun 
and just try to relax myself because I, I I thought that's what it would take, and it did. The you know the the chest pains and the um, um, and the breathlessness and everything came in waves and it stopped and it started and stopped and started. Um, because everything's internal, um, I was still trying to control it. Uh, I still didn't believe it was a heart attack at the time. I, I, I mean, it was dawning on me, but I, but I never felt like I was going to drop dead um, with a catastrophic heart failure. Uh, um, so I was just trying to calm down, you know, slow the breathing, slow the heart rate down. Um, what actually helped was not the oxygen; it was taking all the aspirin. Um, you know, that's the that's that is the platelets, and then, you know, subsequent to all of this, I found out that the type of heart attack I had was called a endemic, which is um, it's still life threatening, but it's not catastrophic. So um, it's a blockage of the one of the arterial veins, so not enough blood and oxygen is getting into your heart but it doesn't cause muscular damage of the heart. So while I'm lying there, I'm thinking, I can do this. It's going to be okay. Um, you know, looking at the faces of my family and, you know, just trying to get myself calmed down. So I knew at the time that, you know, this was a serious medical emergency and I needed to get out of the sun, up to the tent with a cup of hot tea inside me and then to discuss when to push the SOS button. So as it turned out, we could have pushed it an hour earlier, but um, as it turned out, it wasn't a, it wasn't a major issue delaying that hour. Um, I think if I was unconscious or um, with you know greater and more severe symptoms, Bob's would definitely have come to the aid and you know called for rescue immediately. But I think it worked out okay. Um, anyway, so then um, <clears throat> once you press that SAS button, you can't unpress it. It's like, you know, shit happens around the world. And it's, yep. it, it's the second time I've been rescued. The first time was when I broke my knee base jumping in a remote place, landing. And it's, and it's quite humbling, actually, knowing that it's now out of your control. You can't get – I mean, there's no way I could have walked out for two days in 35-degree heat with an unstable heart. Um, so it was really humbling to be able to, you know, basically let go and let Global Rescue, let my friends come and help me, and that's exactly what happened. So the next day I was choppered out um, in a military helicopter. It was actually quite cool talking to the Pakistani pilot. Um, to a military hospital in Skardu where they stabilized me, put me on blood thinning drugs and made it so that I was out of danger you know, with ECGs and um, echo scans and things. And they enabled it such that I'd be able to travel back to South Africa, which happened a few days later. And I went to see a cardiologist here in Cape Town, and the next day they put a stent in one of the veins in my heart. And um, it's a pretty common thing for middle-aged men. And uh, the prognosis is looking good uh, in the about two weeks' time, I'm going to do a stress test on the treadmill, and they're going to put the electrodes on and see, and then I'll be able to see what I can and do after that. But pretty much the outcome was great. Um, and uh, um, I'm, I, um, I'm still around. We're all still friends. 
there was a lot that we could have done better, which Barnes is going through. But um, I see it as a very successful expedition, actually. Funnily enough, the, after my heart attack and the whole um, heavy attack, there were two more days of flying, and then it started raining. So um, ah. I actually didn't blow their blow the rest of their holiday too too badly. Yeah, <laughs> nice, yeah. awesome. And and Andy, uh, you know, prognosis sounds pretty good. What does your future expeditioning look like? Is it, is it less? Is it the same? Can you go back? Would you want to go back? Uh, you know, I, I imagine the mountains are are still calling just as strongly as they always have in a lifetime full of alpine. Yeah, I would definitely like to go back. Um, I would plan things differently and make the the camping in Paiu a lot more comfortable. It's really dusty and really dirty, and um, if you've got a nice, comfortable base, then it's quite nice to do that. I would do things differently, definitely with the physical, and uh, I would acclimatize better, and, and that would entail spinning a lot longer. Um, mm. And acclimatizing a lot more slowly, like in a mountaineering sense, that's what Antoine and Jake and Vesso were doing in Hunza. They were in Hunza for a month when we were there, and now they're in the Beltora right now, also for another month. I think that... For a person my age, I think you need to be a lot more um, focused and a lot more clued up on your acclimatization. We thought we could just wing it with oxygen, but it didn't really work. Um, yeah. You know, the heart attack was caused by not really being acclimatized. Um, um, there weren't that many contributing factors. Um, smoking was one of them. I used to smoke a lot. and um, But... but you know, but ultimately the the it was the altitude. So acclimatization comes becomes very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Okay, Barb's back to your list. Let's let's take us through that. Yeah, I'll try and run through it a bit 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 quicker. Um, so uh, one of the other things we we didn't do was really agree what 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 is is not acceptable. Um, and that that was a bit of a mistake. So for example, um, on the first day. Uh, I actually, because I hadn't been there, I wanted to test out my setup and I wanted to make sure I didn't suffer from altitude. So I had my oxygen on full full blast from the start because like, we had these two massive cylinders, um, but it looked like it was running low. It actually turned out it wasn't really running that low. It was just that the angle that it was in my jacket meant that it looked like it was running low. Um, but we went back and uh, Jeremy and Pierre carried on um, and they, they, they said they they got pretty close to landing on the on the Baltore. Um, they got they got super low, um, which sort of wasn't something I was te- desperately sort of happy about um, when they told told us that because um, that for me was with what we'd said with what we knew about it and the fact that you know landing there should be almost in itself just be perceived as a major incident. Um, we, but we never actually had that conversation in advance. Mm. Yeah, you know, what would our views be if really someone clear directives and yeah, it's that yeah, it's up to it. It was kind of everything was kind of still up to each other, even though obviously it would potentially have a massive impact on the whole expedition. Mm. Um, and to the same extent, um, there was uh, um, how far away if we're buddy flying? How far is too far? Uh, you know, when when I've buddy flown. In South Africa with with Andy, I'm sure it's the same in Sun Valley. You stay super close because it is amazing how quickly you can lose someone. 
uh, and you stay on the radio. And, and and again, we didn't have those agreed. It wasn't really a problem, but we probably should have had, look, you, we kind of stay in the same thermal. If we're going, we say we're going, the other person, it's agreed that they're coming with, or if they're not happy, then they say they're not happy. We didn't have that done. Um, so that, how, that was How much did you ideal. guys, the five of you, how much had you flown together before this trip? Uh, never. Apart, I'd flown with Andy a lot. Um, I'd flown with Scott quite a lot. Um, but I hadn't really flown with the other, the other two had flown a lot together. Mm. So, so sort of there, there was that, the, they, but, they kind of knew how they flew together. But we then we'd all, together. so four of us had all flown in, in Hunza yeah, for 12 days together. So yeah, that's again, tighter. that's one of those, that's one of those things as well. It's, is, um, yeah, it's all, it would be good to spend, spend that little bit more time, time together before you push for the, for the big one. Um, uh, you you guys are all you guys are all still friends. I don't want to throw a question that would put a, a, a knife in that, but the, you know what I thought about the first thing I thought about uh, Richard when you when you told me about the expedition and the number. The first the first red flag for me was that's too many people. Um, would you did you find too many too little? Uh, you know, I, just for me, managing more than one other person gets really tricky you know the 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 odds of an accident of something going wrong you know the, like you said the medical kit uh what if the one person that knows the medical kit what if he's the one that has the, it's just there's there's just there's uh there's difficulty in numbers would you did that present itself as a problem during this it doesn't seem like it but it i'm just not, wondering not particularly. If, i think the fact that yeah to an extent we were sort of almost two buddy pairs Plus, then Scott was sort Arriving of attached third. to Andy and I, in, in in a way, is was my perception. So it was of it. kind of two pairs. It was the three of you and it the was, two of them. Yeah, it okay. was kind of two pairs with with, with Scott sort of um, there there as well. Was my take. I don't know if you would agree with that, guys. That's that's an, well, that's but a but I think thing. just to Gavin's point, actually to the contrary, I think the five of us as five people were everybody had valid input. Everybody had. Um, had a piece to play in the organization and the prep, um, you know, equipmentless and all of that. That that was very much, a, um, from my perspective, easier as a group of five. Okay. Um, I think the flying thing. I mean, we we agreed that we'd split, always split into two or two three, and we agreed, um, you know, and and we'd always split into two pairs, and then the third could choose. Depending on the circumstance, who they um, who they spun off with. Okay, um, so so it worked, and you guys kind of had a had a protocol, and yeah, kinda, I don't think yeah, the numbers cool. thing. I think I think I think the numbers thing was was part of our, this our success to this whole mm. thing. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, yeah. So so then you know one of the the things and spoke to Matt about this last night was smoking. Um, I I gave up alcohol for six months before going. Um, and for me, for going alcohol for a day is quite, quite a thing. I don't really like for going alcohol. I, I love it. Um, so, so, so when, 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 uh, when, when, when Andy, when, when Andy and Scott were smoking, I was not, I was not happy. So mm. that was that was an issue. That that for me was just something that I wasn't very happy with. Uh, but we hadn't agreed in advance, and because we hadn't agreed in advance, I couldn't say no, don't smoke. Um, you know. But that was something I felt we should have done. Um, okay. Then uh, the next one, obviously, don't become a casualty. 
and then be realistic about the pro about your um, injuries and symptoms. That's super important. And actually, one of the weird ones is speak to Garmin and go Global Rescue in advance. Garmin mm. started calling um, loved ones before they actually started getting onto Global Rescue. I have no idea why they were doing that. And they did this when I went, rescued a mate from Nepal last year. Um, they, 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 they spoke, they, they spent to the, ca the casualties family before they went to the insurance company. And I'm like, why would you do that? Just get, get on with getting the evacuation. The, the last thing, people don't need to know the person. By the way, your husband's having a heart attack. He's stuck in the middle of nowhere. What they want to hear is your husband's uh, being evacuated. It would be far more useful. So, wait, this is Garmin did this? Yeah. Holy so crap! Gar I got to talk to them. I was just talking to Garmin this morning. I will let them know. Oh, I would love not, you to talk. That's not how you triage. It's, that's crazy. It, it's it, it's it's nuts. And you know, and and then there was a whole process that went through, and then it gets to global rescue and what have you. And it it, it just certainly that was what we understood happened, and it certainly seems to have been what happened on the two incidents I've been involved in. Yeah. Wow. Um, and interesting. So Garmin, Garmin phoned, Garmin phoned and Andy, um, Andy's button got pushed. Garmin phoned Andy's wife. She wasn't in signal. She, they then phoned second down the line, Andy's son, um, who gave them my wife's number. They phoned my wife and all they could say was somebody's had a heart attack. Um, so they didn't actually, Mm. So all they did was create a little bit of panic amongst everyone. Okay, now now I'm now I'm thinking about this. Okay, so we put in who to contact in an emergency. Uh and so that's obviously what they're doing. So their protocol is to, you know, if you press the SOS, you know, you have the two emergency numbers, your primary, your secondary. That must just be their protocol to do that automatically. That's interesting. Uh not, we are, not, we are one, in, 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 not the one which is in your notes saying, cool, here's my insurance details. Here's the insurance number. Oh, boy, that'd be a big thing to straighten out because there's, you know, that's that's how they have it set up. But this is an interesting, God, that is their protocol, though. Uh, that's an interesting thing to. And this I actually said to Bob's yesterday. I said, it may be that that's their protocol because they need the next of the next of kin, the listed person to, to, they need to talk to somebody that can make decisions. Um, and that is, your, that would normally be your second listed person. This is a would, fascinating subject. Would be, though, my, because... would, would be my interpretation of why they always phone the next of kin. Yes. They do the same in a medical, um, in standard, in, in other medical things. You know, if you go cold on the operating theater, the first thing they do is they phone the next of kin. And they they open discussions with them, but as Bob's is saying, it would be preferable that they phone the, you know, that they phone the the insurance people first and get on the rescue side before they get on the alerting everyone. So I, I I think there's there's two really good things here for all of us and for the listeners. The the first thing, and that's how Richard, that's how you and I connected first. But the 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 first thing we should think about as a community is. Who are, who are the two people we want on there? You know, for example, right now I've got my wife as the primary. After hearing this story, that's the last person <laughs> I want to know, that be told if something severe happens to me. I want my buddy Nate Scales, who's a paramedic, who's a pilot. He knows everything about me. He knows my risk tolerance and he knows how to 
get into action. And he was part of the whole Kiwi incident here. You know, I, you want people like that to know that something has happened and can put it into, you know, when I threw my reserve here before the last X Alps, you know, I, that was the person I contacted. So maybe we as a community need to think about, okay, who do we put on as the primary and secondary? Secondly, I will call Garmin and give them this feedback, but I don't think that's going to change. I think that that's probably their, you know, higher up protocol. That's probably a legal thing or something, but it's, but it is interesting. I mean, the first thing they should do obviously is, is, and I think they do do is it goes the the call Garmin doesn't do the rescue. It's the IERCC. It goes to them, you know, they take over. So it's probably for them. It's just, it's just protocol. They're just following the ABC. Yes. So so one of the other things from that was actually, you know, having the, we would have been better off just calling Jasmine, messaging Jasmine Tours, who would have contacted the military immediately and they'd have sent a helicopter. Yeah. Now, that, that actually would have been far more effective than anything else. Um, so th- now, this is a good one. I want to stall on this. You know, the you know, rescues, we, we had an incident here in Sun Valley a, a few years back where a buddy went in hard, broke his leg. And, you know, there were 15 of us in the sky that day and all but a couple knew that it was going on and we landed and we organized our own rescue. I mean, that was what the the article on the website is built on was, was this incident that goes into the insurance and the whole thing. Because if we had just hit the SOS relied on, on standard authorities to, to save this guy, it was the same thing with Kiwi. Our community is way more resourced. The paragliding community, the flying community in general is is way more resourced than outsourcing it. Uh, you know, we've got the skills, we've all been there, we've we have the contacts, we can do it much 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 faster within our own community. So that is something to, you know, it, depending on where you are, most of the time it's hit the SOS. If there's doubt, there is no doubt, but depending on where you are, you may very well be able to organize and handle the rescue. And especially if there's a search involved way faster through your own community. So that's yeah, good point. Yes. So, so interconnected with that is after a couple of stories, I've got my, um, in, in the notes, I have my credit card number. So if in doubt, get a helicopter, I'll deal with it later. Here's my credit card. For, 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 but the problem one. with that is that they don't seem to really read those notes. Uh, that seems to be the last thing that, that, that happens. Um, and I also now have connected to that a Google, I have a bit.ly link, which goes to a Google spreadsheet of, of useful contacts, um, which just my way of trying to, trying to make sure that that, it, that, that can happen. That's um, interesting. It, uh. It's just, just, but it only works if it gets the right person. And you know, in South Africa, I know of people who've pressed the inReach and it's not worked because um, they've they've contacted the wrong the wrong people. And because in different regions, it's different people. And do Garmin or the IREC or whoever it is, does it get to the right person? So so now when I go there, I have a I have the local numbers. It's like right. Here are the helicopter numbers, but actually, should I be putting those in my emergency contact? I don't know. And that's if if you can help the community with that, that would be something that would be epically useful. And it would but make I think this, Gavin, you feel like we've done the right thing. Your point is that actually that first person of contact 
especially for a trip like this, might be a trusted a trusted friend um, with a, who's already had a basic brief of if you get this call, um, please will you will you execute these these instructions accordingly? Um, yeah, or deal I mean, with I the mayhem, think, the mayhem I, that I, ensues. I, 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 well, I, I like both these things. I mean, one, you know, Richard, the, 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 the more information you could put out there to someone potentially helping that's not in your community, the better, you know, the bit.ly link, the credit card number, all those kind of things. I, I had never even thought of that. So that's fantastic information that we can definitely put in the SOS notes. You know, when Kiwi disappeared in Nevada, they looked at his SOS notes. When I, when I got global, it was global rescue. When I got them on the phone, they had, they'd, they'd seen all that stuff. So that was useful. The other thing, you know, to your point, Scott, I I'm just, just thinking about this in my personal case, I've got Maddie, my wife is the first one. She wouldn't know how to do anything, but she would call my buddy, Nate. But I, so I think what I need to do is, you know, first thing she'd think of is I got to call Nate, you know, he would know how so to my, deal with this. So I think just my, having my wife did the same thing. She phoned my mate, Aiden, who was yeah. sailing down the front face of table mountain at the time. <laughs> of course. He, yeah. He was, but, yeah. That's the risk. The our buddies are like, out doing something cool. Son, well, he looked at the phone and he was like, Sonia doesn't normally call me. There must be a problem. And he answered yeah. the phone. Yeah. Um, yeah, and dealt with it. From I it. guess it's but just yes. important. It's important for us to know that as a community. Okay, hey, hey, uh, Garmin's going to call first, and then second, they're going to call your primary and secondary. Who do you want that to be? That may not be your wife. Uh, it may be, but it it may be somebody who's you know used to dealing with these kind of incidents on a regular. Might basis. it be the insurance company? That would be my question to them. Should we put our insurance company in there, or should we put Global Rescue actually in that? Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe global rescue, but then, you know, you, you want, you want to have the, you know, your, uh, uh, policy number and all those kind of, that's a really good question because in my experience, it really depends on who you get on the other line. Now, the, the protocol, the very, very important thing, which I'm sure you guys learned from an insurance perspective, from a reimbursing perspective is when an incident happens, I've got a one pager now that we're going to distribute to everybody here shortly because of these kind of things. And, and it needs to be more on triaging, but the, the one pager is basically buddy goes down, something has happened. The insurance needs to know as soon as possible you know, they need to be notified as soon as possible, whether this should be the primary or secondary. I'm not, I have to think about that more. I don't know. That's a good, that's a really good question. I'd never thought about that. It's a really good question, but for sure, you know, someone, I think that's more of a, from your group, you know, the, the spreadsheet that you created that has all the information of everybody, you know, basically it starts to get very risky if you start taking helicopter flights and having things happen in the, in the hospital after that. And, and the, actually that that all has happened before you've contacted the insurance company, you know, the earlier they are aware of what's going on, the better it is for you to be reimbursed. That's what it comes down to with insurance. Yeah. Yeah. But I just wonder whether, you know, if you've got the policy, don't, because you have all that detail in the admin section, but if you have, it's just if that means the first people they contact. It's a good. It's a good know. question. It, it, I I just don't know. I don't know if you want them involved in that kind of a thing because it's insurance. I'm always a little wary of that, but it's a great question that I need to get a better answer to. Cool, um, and I think really it, 
that you know we've got it's also just just having that key th- information in there which is just the um uh full from the um the the full from uh full from height we're a paraglider pilots let them know that it's going to be some you know paraglider pilots full from height it, just so we've got that yeah the, you know i'm a, that's what i have in my notes you know i'm a paraglider pilot you know the the chance of a spinal injury are are high you know just just so they just so they know that uh, i think that that's important well guys Great stuff. Uh, I'm glad everybody's still friends. And although it looks like fists are going to be thrown across the pond there, maybe a little bit in the future, but I'm glad you all made it back and, you know, a great end to a pretty scary situation. Andy, I'm glad you're to hear you're still going to be chasing it in the mountains. Uh, the world deserves that. And you're all stellar. I'm, I'm, I look forward to talking to Pierre and, and Jeremy, but especially Pierre about his ex-Alps campaigns and some other stuff. So thanks for reaching out in, in terms of suggestions for that. But Scott, heal up quick. It looks like you're you're way more hurt than Andy. So <laughs> you, you all can see the little <laughs> gonna... scooter that Scott's riding around on and, <laughs> and his wrist. And so uh, yeah. better landings to you, my friend, and yeah. in, in the future. But Thanks for sharing your story and for all these uh, terrific lessons. And, and thanks for sharing your time, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you, Andy. Uh, thank you, Gavin. Thank you, Andy. And um, I'm going to um, I'm going out to fly with them in November, December. So so we are still friends. I, I'm sure I'm sure I might get a dead arm from Scott, but that's fine. <laughs> Fantastic. Always thanks, deserves a bit of a beating. Thanks very much, Gavin. <laughs> thanks a lot. Talk thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye. Bye. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes cost so if you can support us financially all we've ever asked for is a buck a show and you can do that through a one-time donation through paypal or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out we put a new show out every two weeks so for example if you did a buck a show and every two weeks it'd be about 25 dollars a year so way cheaper than a magazine subscription and it makes all of this possible. I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people, and these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account. Of course, that'll be lifetime. And hopefully you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But 
You'll find all that on the website. Uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought Cloud-Based Mayhem merchandise, T-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account. And you should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support. And we'll see you on the next show. Thank you. Thank you.